This is Jesus, if you'll remember uh, last week. Uh, they're still in the upper room where Jesus has celebrated the Last Supper with them. And he has shared with them about um, his bread, his body and his blood that will be uh, broken and shed for him, shed for us. And uh, this is what happens right after uh, Jesus has communicated that. Uh, this is on page four. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, Simon Peter, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and that he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The word of the Lord. Now, before I launch into this sermon, I wanted to give a shout out uh, to uh, somebody. I'm not going to call him out, but uh, my mason is here. And for you that know, I've been working on this masonry furnace for, forever and uh, learning by the school of hard knocks. And so I finally called a professional the first time to come take a... <laughs> my wife is screaming an hallelujah in the front row. And so this, uh, this guy came out and we started a conversation and uh, I, you know, he found out I was a pastor. I said, look, come on out. I'd love to have you. And uh, if you do, I'll give a shout out to uh, his company, Grooms Brick Repair. Grooms Brick Repair. Now, I want to make it clear that at Redeemer, we will bow to no corporate sponsorship, okay? Very important. But nonetheless, uh, I am really glad that he's here from Grooms Brick Repair. <laughs> you know, the easiest way for, to get someone to church is just invite them. Just invite them. I think a lot of people are really wondering about this God thing and would really like to have more information. They just don't know who to ask. Uh, so I'm glad my friend is here, Devin. Glad you're here. I, uh, uh, my heart, on a heavier note, goes out to Ken and Darla Dodal. Ken texted uh, Ken Dodal, one of the elders who normally does the confession. He texted us and said, uh, can someone do the confession for, uh, for me? Uh, you know, Darla is home and she's just in pain and, uh, you know... She just wants somebody with her. And um, 
we said, of course, absolutely. And so we need to be praying for Darlin Ken. She is in pain. And, uh, but I thought to myself, you know, that is so um, integral to us as humans. When we are in pain, when we are stressed, when we are, you know, we, we, we want those who, are, uh, who we love to be with us. Uh, we don't want to be alone. Uh, um, it's part of what it means to be human, really. I was talking to my wife, uh, who's a therapist, and the, the number of bills that I've saved by marrying a therapist has been fantastic. But she said that there are, there are several hardwired circuits into us, seven hardwired circuits. I don't know what the other ones are, but one of those hardwired circuits is abandonment. We, we have a, a deep need uh, to be wanted. Um, she showed this uh, movie of this little baby and, and mom was gone and this baby was crying and crying and, and the dad was there but it wasn't enough and it was when uh, uh, the dad would, would hand uh, the baby one of the mom's shirts and, and the baby would smell it, that the baby would just calm. We have a need to be loved. We have a need to be with the ones that we do love in times when we're scared and afraid. I pastorally counsel a host of people and it's amazing how many issues that that I work through with people that deal with the issue of abandonment and aloneness it was the the Beatles that wrote the song uh, help I need someone and I was reading the lyrics and I thought I'd read some of them when I was younger so much younger than today I never needed anyone's help in any way but now these days are gone and I'm not so self-assured now I find I've changed my mind and opened up the doors. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down and I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please help me? Jesus is entering into the hardest time in his life where he is going to have to go to the cross, is choosing to go to the cross and to die for humanity. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And so these hardwired circuits that are in us are in him. That hardwired circuit of self-preservation. As Jesus is going to have to look a horrible death in the face. And to die it. It is at this time where Jesus reaches out to his friends, the disciples. It is quite astounding that the God of the universe would call humans his friends. Indeed, Jesus has said, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you. On this night before I go to my death, I want to be with you. I don't want to be alone. And in fact, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes the disciples and specifically Peter, James, and John closer with him. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay with me so I can pray. Jesus is about to endure the ultimate aloneness. From all eternity, he has been one with his Father and he is going to be separated from him on the cross. And so he wants to be with his friends. He needs a little help. Well, enter Satan. I have called this sermon the second to last temptation of Christ. And some of you may be wondering, what's the second to last temptation? I'm not speaking of the heretical movie, The Last Temptation, but rather we know in Gethsemane he will experience the, the, uh, the pressure of uh, his life 
is going to be taken and, and that last temptation of deciding, Lord, not as I will, but you will. But I want to call this passage the second to last temptation because Satan has enacted his plan. If you'll remember in the beginning, Satan knows that Jesus has come to die, to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death to ransom humanity. But if he fails, if he, if he, if he like the rest of humanity, decides... Um, uh, to sin, to not obey the Father, all is lost. And so in the desert, if you remember, he tempted him and he failed. And the Bible says he waited for a more opportune moment. Well, that opportune moment has come. And so G uh, Satan is attacking before the uh, hardwiring of self-preservation. He wants to attack through his friends. He wants to through their conduct and their behavior, their disunity, their abandonment, their misunderstanding, to communicate the message, oh Jesus, these people, it's not worth it. Give up. You're not really accomplishing anything. And so we see this bizarre behavior by the disciples that is intended to discourage Jesus, to disrupt him, ultimately to cause him to fail. What I want to do is to look at the particular ways in, in which Satan works to cause these things because he does them in our relationships as well. But how Jesus responds, how Jesus responds to the way they act shows that he's greater than their dissension. He's greater than abandonment. Even though all in the end will betray him, Jesus will go to the cross alone. Jesus will go to the cross alone so that we will never have to live a life that is alone. Jesus will be betrayed and abandoned so that we never have to live a life of abandonment and betrayal. Well, let's look in the ways in which Satan is tempting Jesus to despair. Number one, through dissension and disunity. Jesus has celebrated the Last Supper. He's just told them, take this, this is my cup. It's the new covenant in my blood which I'm going to shed for you. But the one who betrays me is at the table. My betrayer is here. And it says that they started talking with each other, murmuring, asking who it was. Now notice verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now I scratch my head as I hear this and I say, what? Jesus has just communicated, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to shed my blood for you. I'm going to give my life for you. And they respond with arguing among one another who is going to be the greatest. Where does that come from? Indeed, this isn't the first time that's happened. In Luke 9, uh, earlier in the book, it also, there was also another argument about them arguing who was going to be the greatest. And it was also right after Jesus communicating that he was going to the cross. How can they respond in such a way? I think they respond in this way because of two things. The first is they're stressed. And when you're stressed, it's an opportunity for Satan to tempt. Forget, I saw this illustration once. Somebody who shook up a, a soda can. And he said, you know, when you're stressed, what comes out? Well, the soda can, if you will, of the disciples has been shaken. 
And we're seeing what's coming out in their hearts. They start thinking of themselves. As Satan whispers into their ears, self-preservation. It's about you. And we see them taking their eyes off Jesus. Of course I'm not the one who's going to betray him. Look at all of the things that I've done. Well, what about all the things that I've done? You haven't done as much as I've done. And then you hear Peter jump in over here and James is jumping in over here and pretty soon you've got a a full-blown argument going around the table. And I wonder as Jesus is hearing them arguing how he's feeling. I mean, he has just communicated, I'm about to give my life for you. And here they are repudiating the very thing he's going to do. Repudiating the, uh, his example by really communicating, we are the exact opposite of what you're communicating. It's not about giving your life away, it's about who's the greatest. It doesn't appear that they have any concern whatsoever about Jesus, about his pain, about what he's feeling, about his loneliness. This should be the time when they're gathering together and saying, we're with you to the very end. But there's no unity. There's disunity and dissension. And I wonder if Jesus is here hearing the whisper of Satan. They're not worth it. Look at them. We all have experienced this, haven't we, by the way? You're in family situation. You know you're trying to make the best of it. You have some sort of plan. You're going somewhere. But somebody's got to be in their bonnet about something. And they're determined not to have a good day no matter what. And you're trying to make it the best day. But it's, it's like an infection that just starts. And like gangrene, it kind of spreads. And pretty soon, nobody's happy. Nobody's talking to one another. And Satan just laughs. Seen it in a family. Seen it in a marriage. Seen it in a church, maybe. You know, it's just a snide comment, right? Something uttered. But that snide comment creates another snide comment. And another counseling between someone. And we'll pray for them. And the gossip begins and around and around. And pretty soon you have a church that once looked like a family that is in a full-blown argument. And the end result is division and dissension. And Satan laughs. What is Jesus' response to this behavior? He should just throw up his hands and say, forget it. But thank goodness he doesn't. I believe that this is the, actually the time where Jesus stands up from the table, takes off his outer garments, grabs a basin of water, and begins foot by foot, kneeling before his arguing disciples to wash their feet. You can imagine this activity, by the way, is only reserved to the lowest of slaves as the arguments begin to stop over who is the greatest as the King of kings and Lord of lords caresses the dirty feet of the arguing disciples. And Jesus says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them 
and those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you, my friends. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Isn't it the one at table? And yet I am among you as the one who serves. What I love about Jesus Christ is Jesus repudiates the world and Satan not with mere talk, but with his life. He demonstrates in washing these disciples' feet. And he demonstrates in the next day on the cross that his way is best. That his life and his love, his willingness to put himself under people is what true greatness looks like. It's only as we take our eyes off of the world which is all about dissension and faction and disunity and put them on Jesus and his life and how he lives and how he loves that we can be saved from this plague of dissension and disunity. Jesus says, don't worry about greatness in this world because there is another kingdom you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Even though Jesus full well knows they're going to abandon him. And so I assign to you a new kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table. And sit on the thrones judging after the twelve tribes of Israel. Trust me that I have an inheritance for you. Give away your life. Greatness is found in me, not in putting yourself above others. Don't settle for the world when you get me. My wife and I have lived in Virginia Beach for 18 years. When we came here, we were blessed to be a part of a community of believers that we knew from our college days. Pretty tight-knit community. Um... And some of that fellowship as we got together, as our kids grew, uh, grew up, as we shared uh, life, the ups and the downs was very precious and sweet. But within that group, there was a darkness. There was evil actions that one of those people had done that he refused to take responsibility for. There became lies, there became bitterness and disunity and dissension arose it's funny Leellen and I turned to each other I think a day or two ago and said we only really have one or two friends outside of this church praise God for this church by the way this is, this is our family where did that community go well, Satan had the day, I guess. The wonderful thing about Jesus Christ, I don't know about your community, is that he never leaves. Even if you lost everything, 
and everyone. And you felt like no one was for you. Christ went to the cross so that he could have you. He will never leave us or forsake us. And it's only in him that we can find unity, that we can find family. I hope you're experiencing something of that in the church. Maybe you're more experiencing that community element. But Christ will never, ever leave or forsake. So trust in his greatness and his love. Jesus passes the first test, triumphing over this dissension and disunity. Well, now comes the temptation of abandonment and betrayal by his friends. Notice in verse 31, O Simon, Simon, behold, Satan is demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I don't know if you know what sifting is, is but it's essentially you take this uh, sifter, it's, uh, you know, it's got a bunch of holes and you throw some flour in and you start shaking it because you don't want any big clumps of flour or anything. Or if you're trying to sift out a particular material and you shake it and it all starts coming out. What Jesus is saying, apparently there's a conversation that's going on behind the scenes between Jesus and Satan. Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. Apparently, um, Satan is communicating with God, with Jesus. These disciples are mine. Watch what they're going to do when I shake them up. It reminds me a little bit of Job. Remember Job, the beginning of the story of Job? There was a rich and righteous man and Satan comes back from roaming the earth. And he presents, he comes before God. And he says, they're all corrupt. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, the only reason why Job is righteous is because you give him everything. But if you turn him over to me, you'll see his true nature and character. I want to sift him. And that's what Satan wants to do to Peter. Now, why does he say simply to Peter? He actually doesn't, by the way. It says, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. That you in the Greek is in the plural. He's speaking to Simon or through Simon, but he's really speaking to all the disciples because he is going to sift all of them, isn't he? Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat. Satan is whispering, you will see when I sift them. They'll all leave you. They'll all betray you. They'll all abandon you. The sifting is starting right now. Peter says, Lord, uh, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death if necessary. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, not once, but three times. They're all going to run. And Satan is making it painfully clear and asking Jesus the question, do you really want to die for these people? Your ministry is a failure. They won't even stay with you in your trouble. They'll deny they even know you. I wonder how Jesus felt. Full well knowing. They would say they don't even know the man. But Jesus' response in 32 shows us his grace. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When Jesus prays, 
it happens. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, there's no question. Notice when he says, not and if you turn back, and when you turn back. In other words, because I am praying, another word might be interceding. Another way to say it might be, I'm going to stand in the gap for you. I'm going to pray for you that in the end your faith will not fail. See, Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God the Almighty. He's the one that has the ear of God. He is the great high priest. When Satan tempts me to despair, when I feel that there is no one who's looking out for me, no one who's speaking a good word for me, Indeed, when it seems that all have abandoned and betrayed me. This shows us the reality that there is one who stands at the right hand of the Father, who brings us to Him, who's watching out for us. I am the great high priest and I have prayed for you. And at the end, even after you're sifted and it looks like you have failed, I will bring you back to life. See, that's why he came, isn't it? That we might be sifted and our faith in the end come forth as gold. Jesus sees us so different than we see each other. He sees us for what we will be. Indeed, he makes us what we will, we will be. And his goal is nothing less than to turn us from rebels and failures into sons. I don't know if you've experienced abandonment, failure. I don't know if you're wallowing in your abandonment and failure of God. I betray him all the time, Carlos. There's no way he would take me back. This shows us that there's no sin that's too far. No trans transgression. There's no place you can go where the love of God can't go. And the fact that he intercedes for us, that he never stops, that he's always there, gives me hope that God is greater than my sin. He's greater than my failure. Satan wants to divide and discourage you, to show you this is who you are. You can't go back to him. But Christ is stronger than Satan. His victory on the cross is greater than our failure. So come back to God. If you've lost sight of Him, if you've turned away, come back to Him. And when you do come back, strengthen your brothers. We're in this together, you know. Go ahead and get in the mud. Reach down, rescue them. There are going to be times when we're up and there are going to be times when we're down. That's why we need one another. God uses us as we walk along this journey of faith. Jesus doesn't fall for it. And so Satan pulls out his final temptation, that of blindness. Jesus says in the end, verse 35, And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it 
And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressions. Uh, transgressors. And they said, look, look, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. Now some people are looking at this passage going, what the heck is Jesus talking about? Indeed, this passage has been maligned by many different people throughout the centuries. At one time, uh, the Catholic Church said the two swords represent ecclesiastical and civil authority. And indeed, there's some sort of veiled symbology in here and you have to kind of dig into it to understand what it is he's saying. There's a secret message. But it's really rather simple when you think about it. Jesus is speaking using an analogy. Disciples, you have to get serious. You have to get focused. I am leaving. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm conferring on you a kingdom and I'm giving you a mission. And so you have to think for the long haul. And so he illustrates with these different things, a money bag, a knapsack, and a sword. It's not saying to literally buy a sword. Remember, it'll be actually the next night when in the garden, Peter will cut off somebody's ear with, ear with a sword. And Jesus is saying, says, put away the sword. For everyone who lives by the sword dies by the sword. You don't need a sword to preach the good news. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against Satan. It's not saying go and buy a sword. But he's saying get serious. Get focused. But the disciples don't get it, do they? Satan has blinded their eyes. They're taking him literally. They can't see it. They're misinterpreting the truth. Here's two swords, Jesus. It's enough. I wonder if Jesus is just shaking his head going, it's enough. Or that's enough. See, Satan is communicating to Jesus three years, Jesus, and they still don't get it. This ministry is going to fail. They're not going to change the world. You're wasting your time on these people. Give up. It's discouraging to be a teacher. And sometimes you're teaching and teaching and people don't get it. I wonder if Jesus is tempted here to just throw up his hands. Just be done with the lot. But we know he isn't, don't we? Jesus understands he must go to the cross. He must ascend to heaven so that he can pour out the Holy Spirit. Didn't Jesus say that I've come to open the eyes of the blind? To unstop the ears of the deaf? To bring those in darkness into the light? Jesus is not to be fooled by Satan because he knows that by going to the cross they will receive illumination and they will change the world. Blindness, dissension, abandonment. Satan is still alive and well on planet earth. We're tempted to fall prey to his whisperings. 
But the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Jesus has come through on his promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. He's always there. He's always teaching. He's always encouraging. Either through a friend or when we have no one, when we look to him. It's hard to see the truth sometimes. Our emotions cloud our judgment. The world translates the scriptures in a way that are so ridiculous. But God has given us each other here to strengthen one another. God has given us his word here to be preached that we would know. And God has given us himself. I don't know where you're at in your story. But I know in the end Jesus died alone. That we might never have to live alone. And that he's with us. I don't know what else to say rather than cling to him. Encourage one another. Remember his example. Remember what he did. That we might be the exact antithesis of this. See, we're the disciples, aren't we? And soon we're going to come to the table of communion. Is there dissension and disunity in my heart? Do I need to go to someone and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Do I need to repent of my sin to start living in a way that honors him, to stop listening to the world and rather walking in the footsteps of Jesus? He's given us the ability to not have to fall prey to Satan's tools because the one who is greater than us is greater in the world. Jesus is with us. No one can ever take any of that from us. Not the world, not other people, not even ourselves. So let's walk in triumph as we fight this battle. For he is faithful to the end and he will do it. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful you didn't turn back at the second to last temptation and just give up on us. For if you were a normal person, you would have. But though you were fully man, you were the son of God and you came full of grace and truth. And your love is greater than our hate and your faithfulness is greater than our faithlessness. And so Lord, uh, we pray that we would uh, cling to you. Fill our hearts, our lonely hearts. Lord, and create a community of unity, of faithfulness to one another, and of spiritual sight that we might help one another see. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Time in our sermon when we uh, worship the Lord by making our offerings to him. If you're a guest here today, we welcome you. Uh, don't feel like you have to make any offering unless the Lord is leading you to do that. Uh, as Carlos was preaching, I was thinking of um, how Satan can use... Um,